Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Jack Derwin and I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. Today, we're excited to host a panel discussion titled Consumers Research v. FCC and the Legality of the Universal Service Fund Contribution Regime. To discuss this topic, we have a fantastic four-person panel. In the interest of time, I'll keep intros brief now, but please feel free to visit fedsoc.org to view their full bios. Robert Frieden currently serves as a 2022 Wilson Center Fellow and holds the rank of Emeritus Professor of Telecommunications and Law at Penn State University. Harold Furtgott Roth is a Senior Fellow and the Director of the Center for, uh, excuse me, and Director of the Center for Economics of the, uh, one more time, Director of the Center uh, for the Economics of the Internet at Hudson Institute. Sorry about that, Harold. Michael Romano is Senior Vice President of Industry Affairs and Business Development at NTCA, the Rural Broadband, Broadband Association. Our moderator today, Ariel Roth, serves as Legislative Counsel to U.S. Senator Roy Blunt, covering the tech, telecom, antitrust, and consumer protection portfolio. After discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q&A. So please enter any questions into the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom window. Finally, I'll note that as always, all expressions of opinion are those of the guest speakers joining us today. And with that, Ariel, the virtual floor is yours. Thank you, Jack. Um, Today, we're talking about a hot topic in communications law, universal service. The principle of universal service that many of you are familiar with is that all Americans ought to have access to basic telecom services, regardless of where they live or their level of income. And it's been at the cornerstone of federal telecom law since its earliest days. Today, this policy is advanced through the FCC's USF, but that wasn't always the case. For most of the 20th century, during the mobile telephone monopoly, Universal service was achieved through implicit cross subsidies. In other words, artificially high rates in urban areas and for business and long distance service helped subsidize local residential telephone service and in high cost rural areas. That implicit subsidy system was possible by virtue of the telephone monopoly. That system started to erode with the entry of MCI into long distance market around the seventies and implicit cross subsidies eventually turned explicit uh, with the breakup of the Bell system culminating in the 96 Telecom Act, which established the Universal Service Fund. Um, today, the USF is funded through contributions assessed on telecom service providers' interstate and international voice revenues, which they typically pass on to consumers through a billing line item. These subsidies are distributed to four sub-programs dedicated to bringing broadband connectivity to different segments of America, high-cost areas, low-income consumers, schools and libraries, and rural healthcare providers. Each quarter, the Universal Service Administrative Company, USAC, calculates the amount of support it needs to fund the USF programs and establishes a new contribution factor based on contributing companies' projected revenues. When the contributions factor was first established two decades ago, it started out in the low single digits. However, it's risen exponentially over the years. And over the last few quarters, it's hovered anywhere between 25 to 33%. That rise has been attributed to both increased USF spending levels and a narrowing revenues base from which to collect support. USF spending continues to soar while voice revenues continue to decline. Hence, the relative contribution amount increases. This conundrum has provoked intense policy debates over how to reform USF, and we could easily spend the whole hour on this topic. Indeed, FedSoc held such a teleforum in May, and I highly recommend checking out the recording. However, today we're going to talk about a more basic question, the very legality of the USF contribution system. In light of several lawsuits in the Fifth and Sixth Circuits brought against the FCC, um, Specifically, in recent months, plaintiffs in the Fifth and Sixth Circuits filed multiple lawsuits challenging uh, the legality of the USF contribution system. They include consumer group Consumers Research, um, uh, service, service Provider Cause-Based Commerce, and a group of consumers who pay USF contributions. In the cases, uh, Consumers Research v. FCC petitioners claim that Section 254 of the 1996 Act constitutes an unconstitutional delegation of, of Congress's taxing power, and further that the FCC's subdelegation of authority to USAC, the USF administrators, illegal. To better understand the significance of and issues raised by these cases, today we are lucky to be joined by a group of esteemed telecom experts, all of whom are involved in different ways in the litigation. 
So with that, let me first turn to former FCC Commissioner Harold Furch Scott Roth, who is particularly well positioned to discuss the 96 Act because he was one of its architects. Harold, what was the intention of Section 254 and to what extent does today's USF contributions regime reflect the original text and the drafter's intentions? Well, thank you, Ariel, and thank you to the Federalist Society for hosting this event. It's a great honor to be here with this esteemed panel. Uh, let me say, uh, uh, I, staff are never architects of anything. We're implementers of uh, our bosses' uh, views of the world, and uh, uh, so I'm, I'm very happy to have been able to do that on behalf of Chairman Tom Bliley on the House Commerce Committee. Um, uh, I could speak about the intent, uh, and I, I, I will speak a little bit about the intent, uh, which uh, the, the language of 254 heavily came from the Senate side, from what is often called the farm team. Uh, I worked very much uh, in opposition to a lot of that on behalf of the House. Uh, the House lost. The Senate prevailed on a lot of the language, uh, and it was primarily to help uh, the constituents of Mike's trade association, uh, small rural telephone companies around the country. That was the main purpose of Section 254. There's no doubt or ambiguity about that. Um, uh, what has happened over the years is that it's, it's morphed into something very different. I was going back earlier today looking at my uh, initial, my first dissent at the FCC. It was on universal service on this very issue about how the commission got it exactly wrong. And it's never, it's never really recovered. Um, and so uh, I think that's, that's been a real problem uh, is just how the commission has implemented the language. I think there's a way the commission could have and probably still could uh, implement the language that would be consistent uh, with the constitution. But um, there's, you know, frankly, it's, we, we've never moved in that direction. And over time, it simply has gotten further and further away. I, I should note, I recently wrote a post explaining uh, why intent doesn't matter. What really matters is what's in the statute. And uh, I, I think that's the real issue here. What's in Section 254 uh, and, and has the commission followed it? Professor Frieden, um, you're a prolific expert on USF. Would you, would you like to respond? Well, first of all, thanks very much for the uh, opportunity to participate. Uh, my background is uh, uh, a European university uh, just north of Florence. Uh, and I like to put that background, particularly in most times in Pennsylvania, where I'm uh, located, uh, it's, it's uh, 20 below something. Today, it's uh, 20 below 100. And uh, the weather here in central Pennsylvania is very nice, but that's, that's not the case. Um, insofar as the, um, the topic of universal service funding, I, I want to underscore that uh, I'm, I'm not sponsored by anyone. Uh, I have a long history of sort of tracking this, and, and I, I'd share the concerns uh, about uh, the sustainability of the program uh, and um, the expansion uh, uh, of its scope, its cost, its complexity, its vulnerability to litigation, and something that I call uh, compassion fatigue. When you see a 33% uh, uh, surcharge uh, mandatory contribution factor, uh, that, that's going to raise eyebrows. Now, the good news is it's not 33% of 100 or $33, uh, but it is uh, increasing. I wrote a law review article back in 2006. I haven't seen it uh, for, for a decade or uh, uh, well, uh, for a substantial period of time, it was entitled Killing with Kindness, Fatal Flaws in the 6.5 Billion, Make That 8 Plus Billion Universal Service Funding Mission, and What Should Be Done to Narrow the um, Digital Divide. The pathway uh, to hell's paved with good intentions. Uh, certainly, it's a, a noble calling to uh, try to bridge the digital divide, but the execution is uh, is sometimes flawed. I wrote a uh, uh, amicus brief uh, in the Fifth Circuit, uh, sort of emphasizing that you, particularly at this point in time, don't want to throw the baby with, uh, out with the bathwater. COVID-19 has created some uh, serious uh, unanticipated uh, uh, circumstances 
questions about national security and the need to rip and replace uh, Chinese manufactured telecom equipment uh, costing billions of dollars is also uh, in the in the uh, calculus. And I'd say specifically as to Section 254, uh, I think the authors did a good job of trying to future-proof legislation. The problem is that, that in telecom in particular, it's very volatile. There are lots of changed circumstances. Who would have anticipated the um, importance of the internet? Who would have anticipated that the internet's uh, an essential, if you will, who would have anticipated a, a global pandemic or uh, issues of uh, surveillance uh, via telecom switching equipment remotely uh, executed and the like? So there's a lot of uh, unknown unknowns uh, that I think the drafters couldn't have contemplated. But uh, looking at the language, looking at uh, an attempt to uh, uh, identify uh, and define telecommunications and information processing and telecommunications separate from telecommunication service, I think they did a pretty admirable job. And now it's a question of reforming the process, not, uh, not jettisoning it. Let's, let's just move to the discussing the actual lawsuit. Um, uh, so in consumers research, the FCC, uh, the petitioners argue that Section 254 constitutes a standardless delegation of legislative power because they claim the text provides no real limit or intelligible principle when it comes to both the FCC's power to raise money under the guise of universal service. And um, there isn't any kind of ceiling on the amount the FCC can assess. Um, and the FCC itself gets to decide what constitutes universal service. Uh, Harold, so you touched on this in your previous comment. Um, so you, you signed an amicus, amicus brief led by CEI in support of the petitioners that, on my reading, suggests in some places that the problem isn't so much with Section 254 itself, but the FCC's interpretation of that. Um, is that a correct assessment? Is, is the problem inherent to 254 or is the problem um, that petitioners are identifying um, the, the FCC's interpretation of the law? I think they're arguably one and the same, which is to say uh, either the FCC's interpretation is that uh, uh, it's just an unfounded delegation of authority. If the commission is right, that they have the authority to do what they've done under section 254, uh, it, it's just a unlimited uh, delegation of authority. Uh, alternatively, if if the commission for the past uh, 25 years had followed a much narrower uh, interpretation, uh, I'm not sure we would be having this lawsuit today. Uh, but but we don't have that narrow interpretation, uh, and so uh, uh, I, I think that the issue is. Uh, I think they're one and the same, whether it's the FCC's broad, inter just unlimited interpretation, or uh, uh, if, if the commission is right, then there really is, there's no limit in the statute. Mike Romano, I'd like to turn to you. You're on the other side of this, and TCA is an intervener in the case and argues that Section 254 isn't an unconstitutional delegation. Uh, consistent, it's consistent with Supreme Court precedent and the modern intelligible principle test. Um, would you like to respond to the petitioners and, and to Harold? Um, sure. Ariel, thank you for um, having me participate in this as well. Appreciate the chance to, to connect with you all on this. Um, yeah, I'd like, like to just pick up on a few points. I mean, the first point, I think, and, and this is an important one, even in talking about sort of um, other issues that come up in the case about sort of whether it's a fee or a tax, for example, is, um, you know, Harold mentioned the beneficiaries of universal service. The ultimate beneficiaries of universal service, and I think this has been highlighted in some of the legislative history, uh, is, or they, they are the, the uh, there was a determination that there are network effects, that in other words, all of the payers into the system benefit from the ability to interconnect with one another. And that's a really a tradition or, or a hallmark of universal service policy dating back to 1913, right? I mean, this predates even the FCC itself. So I think when one looks at the beneficiaries, there's, there's a broader class there. And I think that that's important in this case. Um, I do also appreciate Harold's point about being able to interpret this consistent with the constitution. And, and this goes to, I think, to Professor Frieden's point about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. This case sort of tees up the question of, 
should we just throw the whole system out because it's unconstitutional? But I think as Harold notes, there's really, and, and as Professor Frieden's talked about as well, I think there are ways that one can look at it. And, and frankly, we think that what the FCC has done is constitutional, I'll come to that in a minute. But if one has a quibble with how the FCC has done it, it's not to determine the, the very delegation of the statute itself to be unconstitutional, but rather to, to talk about the policies and the way they've been implemented. And you know, I think the folks who really highlight this well in the, in the case so far are the members of Congress who filed. So you had a number of sitting members of Congress on a bipartisan basis file explaining why they think a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation to start with is constitutional, why they think it is, and it, it, it passes the test, for example, for having intelligible principles. And I'll, I'll actually, the quote that struck me from their brief was, Petitioner's assertion that the FCC's administration of and, and use, the petitioner's assertion that the FCC's and USAC's administration of the USF system lacks direction from Congress is historically baseless and simply incorrect. And again, that's a bipartisan group of members of the House and Senate alike who've, who've made this point. At bottom, we think Section 254 is constitutional under Supreme Court precedent. Um, it complies with the intelligible principle test that's been articulated by the Supreme Court as it exists today. Um, and intelligible principles abound in Section 254. I know that um, the petitioners have called them precatory in some cases and, and attempted to dismiss them, but they are limiting, they have been cited by the FCC in limiting its authority to do certain things and rejecting certain arguments. They have been looked at by courts in the past, and in some cases the FCC has been struck down in terms of universal service policy due to those very principles that are somehow otherwise deemed precatory. So, I know that the petitioners are casting about for sort of a hook um, about special tests and, and, and things like that that they can look to for, for this kind of action in particular. But at the end of the day, under existing Supreme Court precedent, interpreting what is an intelligible principle, Section 254, uh, we think, passes muster. Would, any, would anyone care to respond? Or Yeah, I'd be happy to respond, first of all. Let me say, um, uh, to the extent intent matters, and I'm not sure it does, uh, I think what matters is what Congress actually writes, but to the extent intent matters, I was confirmed in 1997, uh, right after the first set of universal service uh, orders by the FCC. And, and let me tell you, from both sides of the aisle, I was told this universal service program the FCC is putting in place does not work. And uh, I got, um, uh, it was unambiguous to me that the commission, that Congress at the time on both sides of the aisle was not happy with where it was going. And, and the, the commission went off in different directions. Uh, it, it, this, is, this is not a situation where you have the commission implementing the, the statute from the outset and, and having a uniform praise from Capitol Hill, I would say pretty much the opposite. Uh, and I worked with members on both sides of the aisle uh, and uh, uh, I, I never got criticized once for dissenting from the commission's universal service rate changes and explain in detail why I just didn't think the commission had the authority. Um, so I, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, members of Congress have their views and, and they're, they are the ones who are elected. They're the ones who are representing people. Uh, but I, I, I'm just not sure that the case, at least when I was working up on at the FCC, uh, that there was uh, widespread support for, for exactly what the FCC was doing at the time. Maybe there is now. I just, uh, I can only speak from my own history. Yeah, so Ariel, if I could just jump in back at that point, I apologize if I'm stepping over Professor Frieden if he was going to jump in. But I think what Harold's highlighting, though, is that um, there is a policy disagreement, right? Not a, not a legal disagreement necessarily. It's the way in which the commission went about it is the cause of the dissent or concern, not the constitutionality or the variability of the commission to carry out certain things. And again, that's, that's certainly a, a, a point that can be debated, but this case challenges the very delegation of authority to the commission to assess contributions. Um, and so, I, you know, I think the question is, does it hold that authority to implement Congress's delegation of a contributions mechanism? I think the answer is yes, based upon the guidance and the boundaries that Congress has set. And I think that's the point that 
has been made in the congressional brief. I don't think they're necessarily asserting this is what you know we or others sitting in our seats intended in 1996. They're pointing to the statute as it stands now and whether it is bounded uh, and provides intelligent principle. I would say, though, but from the very outset, there was a lot of concern about the commission setting up a tax structure. This is not a new issue that simply developed in the past couple of years. There is concern from the outset about whether the commission had the authority to set up the fund in the way it did and to finance it in the way it did. Uh, different members had different views. I'm not saying everyone had that view, but it, it was not. These, these concerns about the constitutionality of a tax are, are not new issues. Let me uh, chime in following up on uh, Michael's comments. Um, I, I've had the benefit uh, or the curse, if you will, of sort of tracking this for uh, a long, long time, uh, um, particularly before uh, enactment of the uh, 96 Act. And emphasize the 96 Act codifies what was obscure, makes more transparent what was initially privately implemented. And, you know, AT&T sort of killed two birds with one stone. It sustained its monopoly, but it also uh, fostered, um, uh, created a fund, a subsidy mechanism for building out uh, into rural areas. If you look back before 96 and before enactment of the 96 Act, there was a lot of stuff that, uh, uh, quite frankly, wouldn't pass the smell test. Uh, the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, bless their hearts, uh, had the opportunity to basically uh, determine that a, a minute of long distance traffic was 330%, not 33%, but 3.3 times uh, the, the cost causation uh, of a local minute. And there was something called rate integration, which I love. I, uh, I looked up the distance between Guam and Boston this morning, and it's 7,000 miles. Rate integration was this wonderful boondog, which basically took the cost of continental United States service uh, long distance when we had a time at a time when we had minutes of use and metered service and, and whatnot. Added on to that, the cost to serve Alaska, the cost to serve Hawaii, hence it was certainly uh, uh, nonpartisan, bipartisan, the cost to serve uh, Puerto Rico, the US Virgin Islands, Guam and American Samoa. So you could call from American Samoa and Guam to Boston, it would be substantially lower. And we didn't have a uh, ad hoc group of long distance uh, callers of the Chamber of Commerce uh, uh, disputing that. And I got to sort of uh, go to the issue also of taxation. My definition of taxation, my understanding of ta taxation is that uh, someone who earn, earns income, someone who is subject to uh, the, uh, the taxing authority of the United States pays funds into the U.S. Treasury, and then the U.S. Treasury disperses those funds. This is a mandatory, but it says uh, 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 voluntary contribution factor. I think there's a difference between uh, allocating, telling carriers a certain percentage of your revenues will be attributable to this service uh, for which there's a mandate, an explicit mandate in the, in the act now that codifies that which was not uh, clear, non-transparent. And then the carriers themselves uh, pass through that expense uh, to a select group of ratepayers. I think the real problem here is uh, agreed that it's not necessarily uh, legal, but it's more a question of sustainability of a program uh, when you have a declining set of underwriters who, quite frankly, are not happy to see that there are spillover and positive effects uh, flowing to a lot of ventures that could make contributions to the well-being uh, and bridging the digital divide who certainly exploit and have the uh, opportunity to generate vast revenue, significant revenues and profits in the internet ecosystem, uh, thanks to uh, attempts to make um, access to the internet broadband and voice telephony um, more affordable and more accessible. I write about compassion fatigue. I've got a paper I'm working on just now. I mean, 33% is a, a daunting figure, but there are ways to reform that uh, to make it uh, more workable. And I'll, I'll, I'll defer that to a later discussion, but. Uh, and in terms of my sort of bottom line, this is a question where you certainly don't want to look at the COVID uh, uh, people who are uh, 
driven by COVID to drive to a McDonald's parking lot. And you certainly don't want to be on the side of suggesting, well, maybe we should have hundreds more FCC government employees administrating this instead of USEC. And I don't think you want to be on the side of saying, well, let's make it harder for people, particularly in rural areas, to uh, access uh, the cloud and uh, social networks. Now, I should admit, I've lived in rural Pennsylvania for 30 plus years, and my circumstances are different, but I could drive five, 10 miles from where I live just now, and there's no cell phone services, only satellite, uh, slow speed data. I'd like to just pick up on an issue that has been kind of touched upon um, that really zero ins on the issue of whether 254 contains a limiting principle on the FCC's authority. And that's the question of whether you, the USF contribution mechanism is a fear attacks. Professor Frieden, could you, could you explain why this classification is relevant from a constitutional perspective? Um, okay, I, I will try, and, and, I, and I know you're uh, you're interested about uh, the uh, impact of uh, uh, West Virginia, and, and I'll yeah. add uh, something called the Chevron Doctrine. Um, I want to go back to uh, something that the '96 Act did, and that is the codification of policy. And they named names; they identified beneficiaries. And when you expand the set of beneficiaries, the E-rate, libraries, schools, healthcare facilities. Uh, tribal uh, nations, what have you, you're going to push the uh, complexity uh, calculus uh, uh, time and time again. Um, the USAC um, provides on their website a um, perhaps a self-serving calculation of who the beneficiaries are. And I'm just going to cite to uh, uh, that website, I haven't fact-checked it, 8.1 million individual beneficiaries 128,147 schools and libraries and 9,050 uh, rural healthcare facilities. If you, that, if you have that kind of set of beneficiaries, um, you're going to have complexity, you're going to have scamming, you're going to have abuse, uh, you're going to have uh, a lot of uh, good money chasing uh, after bad money, you're going to have throwing money at the problem, you're going to have poor calibration, you're going to have maybe an overemphasis on the supply side as opposed to enhancing digital literacy uh, and how to use uh, computers and, and smartphones. Um, you're going to see recurring subsidies to carriers and not necessarily vouchers uh, uh, to individuals, direct funding to uh, individuals. You're going to have all bunch of uh, complexities and, and areas of disagreement. Uh, as to what's the best practice, what's the best case scenario. But going to your question, sort of first principles, is this a tax? I just, I don't see how you characterize it as a tax when it is not funds flowing to the U.S. Treasury and from the U.S. Treasury. Harold, do you want to respond to that? Do you, is the USF a tax? I think the way it's structured now, it's unambiguously a tax. It's uh, the... Uh, the people who pay in, and the statute's very clear, it's only carriers of interstate uh, telecommunication services uh, contribute, uh, and, and they contribute without direct benefit. And, and I, I recognize Mike's point about the network effects, uh, but I think, that's, I think that's a little bit indirect. Uh, the commission itself is funded by a fee structure, and the fee structure is on uh, licenses. Uh, and on permits. Uh, so in order to get a license fee, license or a permit, you have to pay the FCC and that's how the FCC funds itself. That is not the structure at all for how USF is funded. It could have been funded that way. And for many years, I, you know, I, I helped organize a group that was focused on a numbers-based system where in order to get numbers, you would make a contribution to USF. It would and that way you would have this sort of quid pro quo. You donate something, you get something in return, and then it's a fee, it's not a tax. Uh, but the way USF is funded right now, you get a, you're, you're a carrier of telecommunication service between Washington DC and New York, and you get a bill for $100 or whatever it is. And you, get, you really aren't getting a lot directly in return, it's very indirect. So I think it's a tax and not a fee. Mike, would you like to respond to that? Sure. Yeah. And I, and I saw also the comment uh, 
from a good friend about the fact that mechanically the funds do flow through Treasury, although I know that at the time it was specifically set up by those who were at the FCC that while the funds are maintained in Treasury in a special account, they're not part of the sort of general tax revenue of the United States and they're separate, they're put into a separate account for purposes of previously they were held in commercial banks until such time as it was found that they should be, you know, it was better to store them in the treasury. And I remember a lot of the mechanics around that, but, but nonetheless, I mean, I think the ultimate point is um, <laughs> the courts that have looked at this have said previously that it's not a tax. Um, they've looked at it and said, it's a fee. The DC circuit has said this, the fifth circuit itself, the very place where this case is, one of these cases at least is, is being litigated 20 something years ago, looked at this question and said, this is a fee and not a tax. Um, you know, look at the end of the day, whether you know, the mechanics of where it flows or one thing, but um, it's not for the purpose of raising revenue. Um, the primary purpose um, is to ensure universal service, universal service policy as articulated by Congress. Um, it's obsessed on certain regulated entities. It's for the purpose of defraying the cost of providing a service that's overseen by the FCC. Um, and, and I'm just going to quote the Fifth Circuit here. They looked at this previously. It's a payment in support of a service managing and regulating the public telecommunications network that confers special benefits on the payees. So in that case, it looks an awful lot like a user fee rather a fee rather than a tax. Um, and it's not the case that any fee that happens to have, um, as Harold said, um, indirect effects that also help other beneficiaries to converts a fee into a tax. I mean, that's, that's just by operation of the nature of these network effects. Um, this, a number of states that have looked at this more recently have found the same thing. There have been a challenge in Louisiana, which just sits in the Fifth Circuit. Obviously, that's not binding. It's looking at a state universal service fund. But there, that court said that it's allocating the cost for the administration of a regulatory program. And, and you know, ultimately, I think, too, one thing to just keep in mind is the Supreme Court's previously, and I know this has been teed up in the case where it's been argued that because this is a tax, it's somehow subject to a special level of non-delegation doctrine than, than otherwise would be the case. Um, again, don't think it's a tax in the first instance, but even if it is, um, you know, the Supreme Court said in Skinner, I'm going to quote this as well, we find no support for the contention that the text of the Constitution or the practices of Congress require the application of a different and stricter non-delegation doctrine in cases where Congress delegates discretionary authority to the executive under its taxing power. So don't think it's a fee in the first instance, or don't think it's a tax in the first instance, thinks it's a, think it's a fee, but to the extent that someone were to determine somehow that despite the prior precedent, it is a tax and not a fee, that doesn't necessarily then trigger or tripwire into a new non-delegation doctrine level of uh, uh, scrutiny, so. Just uh, to chime in with a, a fine point, if you if you look at your phone bill, I encourage everyone participating, look, look at their phone bill, you're gonna see a proliferation of billing line items. Uh, it's starting to look like a, a concert ticket or a, Airbnb or cable television, there's a real proliferation. In fact, just recently, I think the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, is going to impose or has already imposed uh, a couple of penny surcharge for the uh, suicide uh, 988 uh, uh, toll-free number. Uh, I think if you looked at many of these uh, line items, you'd see tax, okay? It's, it's going to a municipal or state um, program, it's, it's going to a, a political uh, entity. You'd see something uh, including uh, the uh, universal service fee. You'd see something that called the subscriber line charge and that's uh, seven plus dollars. Where is that going? It's going to, uh, it's going to the uh, carriers to defray the cost of building a network to originate and terminate long distance traffic. I think it's very difficult for your general consumer when they are uh, beset with these line items, one after another, after another, you know, it's like the convenience fee to print your tickets to go to a concert, right? And it all gets sort of subsumed into um, taxation. It's a tax, it's a tax. Uh, I want to just go back, uh, lastly, to the notion of uh, the, the carriers themselves not benefiting. First of all, they, it doesn't come out of their pocket. It's a pass-through to their subscribers and to the extent they are participants in and recipients of universal service funding, they uh, certainly uh, participate in, in the largesse. VOIP, voice over the internet service providers uh, have to contribute or their customers have to contribute and they are not beneficiaries of universal service funding. I wanna be mindful of the time because I have other questions to get to you, but Har Harold, did you wanna respond or? 
why don't we go on to the next? Yeah. Step? Okay. So, so let's just switch gears a little and talk about USAC, yeah. um, the permanent administrator of the USF. So there have been plenty of concerns raised over the years when it comes to USAC's discretion, accountability, transparency, efficiency, and responsiveness to the point that Congress explicitly told the FCC in the Broadband Data Act that USAC couldn't administer the FCC's broadband maps. Here, though, petitioners argue that the FCC's delegation of authority to USAC to determine quarterly contribution factors is straight up illegal. Um, so, Professor Friedan, in your amicus brief, you defend USAC, or at least the idea of an independent universal service funding organization. And you state that having such an organization promotes greater transparency, accountability, and efficiency in the collection of disbursement of funds. Um, do you do you think USAC's permanent administration of the fund is legally proper? I believe so, because if you look historically at uh, how are you going to try to bridge the digital divide, how are you trying to uh, achieve the Maitland ITU Commission of 1985, so, uh, proposing that everyone should have access uh, or be within walking distance uh, uh, of a telephone. Uh, if you look at the participation of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners and a federal state joint board on universal service funding, you see that there's been uh, collaboration uh, between states uh, and the federal government. Uh, if there were preemption, I'm sure the states would uh, would would scream that uh, that this is uh, that this involves federalism, that this is uh, something that combines intrastate uh, local service and inter interstate service. And I go back to sort of a practical matter: Do you really, really <laughs> want to have hundreds more FCC employees handling uh, the collection of funds and the distribution uh, of funds? And I understand the point about the escrow account at, uh, at the at the Treasury. Um, I look at this as something where you have an explicit uh, part of the Communications Act that recognizes the delegation and the consultation with advisory committees and with federal state joint boards. And I think it was a practical matter to say that if you're going to expand the set of beneficiaries, the E-rate beneficiaries, all those libraries, all those schools, those healthcare facilities and the, and the like, um, better to sort of uh, offshore it or <laughs> send it, privatize it, uh, take it out of the uh, the government, and uh, and have somebody um, expert and develop a, a learning curve on on doing that. The alternative would be, well, maybe you don't uh, have a private funding of the of the system. You have the general taxpayer funding of the system, uh, in which case the Justice Department could be involved in in auditing. Um, one other point about. Uh, uh, the um, uh, allocation uh, of responsibility or the uh, achievement of, uh, of a subsidy obligation or allocation of a subsidy obligation on the basis of, of telephone numbers. I've looked at that and, and, and it's, it's clean uh, and I appreciate the Commissioner Fritzko-Roth's uh, comments about that, but it also can be uh, uh, counter-progressive uh, counter in the sense that uh, not all phone numbers are the same. They're heavily used phone numbers and they're not so heavily used phone numbers. They're second phone numbers into a residence and they're second or 22nd or 222nd numbers into a, uh, into a business or whatnot. So it could be regressive. Carol, do you want to respond is, uh, yeah. on the USAC question? Um, it's just an oddity about all of this. You, you won't find USAC in the statute. You won't find the word universal service fund in the statute. You won't find the word universal, or the phrase universal service fee in the statute. All of this was created by the FCC without explicit authority from Congress. The FCC set up a Delaware corporation. There is no authority in the Communications Act for the FCC to set up a Delaware corporation. The FCC assigned this Delaware corporation enormous discretion. You won't find that in the statute. This, this whole structure of USAC is so lawless that it is, it, it, I find it deeply troubling. It has a budget, it has an administrative budget of uh, $250 million in 2021, which is roughly half the size of the FCC. Now, admittedly, the FCC isn't handing out $8 billion a year. And I'm not saying that um, that's uh, uh, something that the FCC could swallow uh, easily. 
But it's the FCC that has the statutory authority. It's the FCC that has the statutory responsibility. And by golly, it should be the FCC that's doing all of these things, not some third party. And the way all of this gets funded is USAC. And, and look, I'm not, they're wonderful people at USAC. I'm not criticizing the, the, the people there in any way at all. And I'm not criticizing what they're doing. All I'm saying is what they're doing should be done by a federal agency under the Communications Act not something that's just been cr completely created out of thin air. And, and the way they get funded is quarterly, beginning since 2003, they send over their cost estimates, which are fine. And then the FCC has this complete sleight of hand, which isn't USAC's problem, it's the FCC's problem, where the FCC says, unless the FCC votes against this, it goes into effect in 14 days. I mean, this default structure where a third party non-governmental entity says, here's our bill, you have to pay it, and we're going to set the rate for this government program, uh, and there is no FCC vote on it. The FCC should be taking a vote on this every quarter saying, yes, we are the responsible party. We're going to vote on this. And I think it actually, it all should be done inside the FCC, whether the FCC is capable or not. And it should be up to Congress to, to change that if, if Congress wants to have some third party. You will not find Universal Service Administrative Corporation in the Communications Act. Mike, do you want to respond? Yeah, uh, I mean, USAC doesn't jump without the FCC saying how high. I mean, at bottom, USAC is under the guidance and direction of the FCC. They've been retained by the FCC for the purposes of serving as the administrator of the Universal Service Fund. And Ariel, you know, you, even your question, you said they determine the, the quarterly contribution factor and Harold sort of went to that with his um, point about they send over the bill. They're using FCC data, FCC filings that are collected from the regulated entities to figure out what it is. They're not determining, they're calculating. They are performing the ministerial task of tabulating what the FCC has received from the regulated entities, telling the FCC what that calculation adds back up to. And yes, they give the FCC, FCC takes it back. And then within 14 days, unless others weigh in, it then sets that at that level. But that is a ministerial administrative task that is being performed pursuant to a defined set of functions that the FCC has told USAC to follow. USAC doesn't make policy. USAC um, has to consult the FCC wherever there's uncertainty. If someone has a challenge with what USAC has done, that is a, that determination is appealable to the FCC and then the FCC will rule on that either through the appropriate bureau, appropriate bureau or through the commission itself. Um, you know, for the purposes of this specific bill, and I don't disagree with Harold that you know, there are things that USAC could be doing better or differently. Our members have their own issues with USAC and how they do certain things in the administration of the program on behalf of the FCC. But at the end of the day, USAC only does what the FCC tells it to do. And for the purposes of the appeal, it only calculates the, the quarterly contribution factor. It does not determine it. It does not set its own policy in deciding how to do that. It has zero discretion other than to take the FCC's data and do that calculation for the FCC. Again, you can have a discussion, much like we were saying earlier, about is there a better way to do it? Probably so, but there's a, there, that's a different discussion than whether it's constitutional or whether they've given a, a, a they've um, violated the non-delegation doctrine by going externally to an entity like USAC for performance of some of these contracted functions. Just to add a footnote about USAC and explicit uh, recognition of their administrative function. Now, I know COVID-19 uh, creates exigencies that uh, uh, are probably uh, not likely uh, to have been anticipated, but what do you do in this emergency? There's explicit recognition by Congress in allocating from the treasury, from tax revenues, uh, USAC to be the administrator for some of the uh, ad hoc COVID-19 oriented uh, short-term uh, emergency relief. So there's at least a recognition uh, explicitly that uh, USAC has the capability of at least dispersing uh, funds uh, quickly. Uh, and we can dispute as to whether that's throwing uh, good money after bad or throwing money at the problem and, and, and whatnot. That's for another conference. But um, USAC has been explicitly uh, recognized by Congress as the go-to uh, entity uh, to disperse the funds. 
and manage the process. Harold, were you going to say something? I was just going to say uh, I would be a lot more comfortable if the commission took a vote every quarter and said, yes, uh, we're, we're happy with these numbers, but they don't. You know, it's it's we're on this automatic pilot system that was set up in 2003, back when uh, universal service contribution rates were in the single digits. Uh, and, and the FCC just is missing in action. Picking up on um, that, what you just said, the system being set up two decades ago, uh, we have a question from the audience that uh, asks about timing. Um, if there, the, the question asks, if there were concerns over the constitutionality of the FCC's implementation of the USF system shortly after the 96 Act, why was this legal challenge not filed at that time? Why wait? 25 years to do it. Um, and that also picks up on the argument that the FCC or the government raises in response to litigation that the that the challenges they claim is untimely. Um, and uh, so so I just wanted to turn and and see uh, what do you, what do the panelists think of of these procedural arguments? The government raises an argument that the case is beyond the Hobbs Act 60 day time limit for filing pre-enforcement facial challenges. Um, and uh, and they claim, well, while petitioners purport to challenge the FCC's approval of a particular contribution factor, they're really challenging the contribution system itself. Uh, what do you what do you think of these these arguments? Um, and I guess similarly, is there is there another reason? Uh, that the, these these challenges are, are being filed now? Is there a more um, underlying reason that has to do with the timing? Um, you know, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of anticipation over the Supreme Court's um, interest in curtailing the so-called administrative state. Um, and, you know, that that's also, so that exists at the same time as um, a, a kind of an existential um, questions regarding the USF. Um, you know, there's been proposals in recent years to massively, well, to expand the programs through through broadening the contributions base. Um, and then there's also uh, certain, certain uncertainties regarding um, the... USF in the aftermath of the infrastructure legislation. So I just thought, I thought I'd open it up to questions about timing um, and, and what you think about, the, about these issues. Well, I'll go ahead and start. Um, we actually, um, I know a number of folks raised sort of Hobbs Act arguments, the FCC itself raised them obviously, and it's, it's brief. And, and I think there's merit to those. Um, you know, the, the petitioner's challenge isn't, to, and I know they dress it up as, well, every quarter it's a new rule, essentially they're challenging, but they're not challenging the, the, the amount of the calculation. They're challenging the fundamental underlying constitutionality of the very application of a contribution requirement in this way. So treating every quarter as if it's a new application um, seems like a distinction without a, a difference. Um, they had 25 years to raise the, to take notice of the contribution factor and raise their, their challenges. And it took them you know, roughly 96 quarters to get around to, to doing so. Um, so I think trying to leverage the establishment of a ministerial factor into a challenge of the rule um, is, is a bridge too far. Um, and actually this in turn feeds into a number of the reliance interests that I think have been raised in some of the briefs. I think um, a number of the groups raised the point that since then a number of, um, entities and beneficiaries have come to rely upon these programs for so many critical things. And, you know, you see the FCC itself, right? I mean, in recent years, we've seen FCCs on both sides of the aisle of all perspectives and what the non-delegation doctrine might, might be otherwise, I presume, um, leveraging the universal service program to do more, to introduce telehealth and connected care pro programs and the like, all of which actually put more burden on the contribution mechanism, but rightly so from policy judgment perspective, without concern as to exactly how that is, is funded and thinking there could be improvements. And I'm sure a number of the folks who've done that have expressed 
support specifically for potentially changing the way in which contributions are assessed. Going back to Harold's point, there may be a very good case for why numbers are a better system. It, you know, we've certainly considered that ourselves in the past. But um, at the end of the day, a number of parties have come to rely upon this mechanism, number of beneficiaries as a result of this having been in place for over two decades. And the challenge would appear to be untimely for, for, for that reason. Um, at the end of the day, again, I mean, I think there's just a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of reliance upon these. And, and, and I think that there's a need to make sure that those who are using these programs now and who've bought into these programs, as Professor Frieden said in the COVID era, for example, can't continue to do so without disruption, given the belated nature of the challenge. Anyone uh, want to, yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, let me just try to tease out some issues here. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm very sympathetic on the reliance issues. I don't think whatever the courts would do would uh, lead to some uh, uh, just immediate secession of the programs. Uh, at least I would hope that would not be the case. But I think if we look at, uh, look, I'm, I'm a very simple fellow. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I have no views about timeliness. But I do have views about the importance of an agency following precisely what the statute says. Because I was there when the 96 Act passed. I saw how difficult it is. And I want to defend every single word in that statute and not go outside it and not invent things. And what I think has happened at the FCC over the past 25 years is that the FCC, I don't even think, looks at the statute anymore, to be quite honest. And we haven't even discussed, and, and this case doesn't raise, what I think is the biggest miscarriage in 254, which is uh, the complete absence of the 214 requirement to receive funds. That's what the statute says. You cannot receive anything under this section unless you were 214. Well, the commission hasn't done that in decades. And, and this, this, what has happened is this program has evolved in so many ways that have absolute that are untethered to the statute, and uh, it, it's not healthy. I, I really don't think it's healthy for the recipients of the program to be reliant on a program that has such feeble at best, really feeble at best, relationship to any statutory authority. You know, at the end of the day, if we are a country that is governed by the rule of law, then we have to actually follow what the law says, not to sort of say, well, we've gotten so far away from it for decades. Let's just continue being far away because we're so used to it. And, I'm, I'm, you know, I think we need to figure out a way. How do we get back to the statute? And yes, there are reliance issues. And I am very sympathetic to what those reliance issues are. But I think there has to be a way to, to get to get the reliance issues addressed, but let's get the, the agency back to following the law. Harold, I just, an interesting question popped up and I just wanted to get to it. I, I know we don't have a lot of time left. Um, and this actually goes back to the USAC issue and you know the issue you raised about following the statute. Um, so, so Mike claims that USAC's role is ministerial and, and is legally proper. Um, so, so the question asks, um, Harold, could if 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 USAC's role were or were purely ministerial, um, could the FCC not contract out that function? Um, and if they if or um, you know or that they could contract out that function, but they'd have to follow federal contracting law. Yes, they'd have to follow. Federal contracting law, and I—that's uh, not how this has evolved every yeah. time. Um, but I'm—I think there's a lot that goes on there that's not purely ministerial. Uh, some of it clearly is, and probably could be contracted out. Uh, but I'm not convinced all of it is. So it wouldn't just be solved through, in your opinion, through bidding out USAC's contract. You could. That would. I think that at the very least would address the the uh, administrative costs, but I, I, uh, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know enough about the details of that to have a, have a good answer. And I, I leave that to uh, Professor Fried and, and, and Mike Romano oh. to address. Ariel, if I could though, actually, I do want to just add it. I mean, I think when it comes to the 
issue that is the, at the core of this case, which is the calculation of the contribution factor each quarter, that really is probably among the most ministerial functions that USAC does perform. They take FCC data, mm -hmm. they calculate it, they send it back to the FCC. Uh, you know, USAC does a lot of other things that, you know, I, I guess I don't even know all the functions they perform in a variety of programs. But in this particular case, in this particular instance, I'm having a really hard time seeing what's not ministerial about calculating a contribution factor. And I have not heard any facts that lay out that it's something more ambitious or extra jurisdictional than, than, than that calculation. Um, the one thing I also just want to mention as a clarification, Harold, you brought up 214. And I, I always love this because this always comes up all the time in the high cost context. People say that we should do away with eligible telecommunications carrier designation. It still does exist in the high cost program. It's something we've actually thought is precisely the reason you've outlined is something that should continue because 254 requires that 214 apply. And we hear from a lot of folks that it should be eliminated. You can't just write it out of the statute. I think it's an important measure of accountability that Congress sought to insert there. And, and for that reason, um, we continue to be big believers in it. <laughs> I just sure. want to... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I just we I, I had one more question. Um, I I just want to be mindful of time because we only have like a few minutes left. Um, so you know we've we've talked a lot about uh, the non-delegation doctrine, and that's mostly what the briefs in the case focus on. Um, I, I was just wondering, you know, we recently the Supreme Court uh, decided West Virginia v. EPA, and many SCOTUS watchers had predicted that the Supreme Court would reinvigorate the non-delegation doctrine there. But instead, the court resolved that case through applying the major questions doctrine. Um, so I also want, and, and also I know that the amicus brief that, that Harold signed on to raises a major questions challenge, arguing if Congress wanted the FCC to create such a massive program, uh, which the brief construes as a tax, it would have spoken clearly. Just wondering, does that, do the panelists think that West Virginia v EPA bears on consumers' research v FCC? Um, and also, just finally, uh, as just the last, uh, as a last question, any predictions on the case? I'll chime in and I'll be brief. Um, I take uh, Commissioner uh, Roth's uh, comments about mission creep. It's it's it's. Um, serious, uh, but circumstances change and the citizenry um, are uh, sort of expanding their, their appetite, their expectations of what you can get from a fiber optic or wireless pipe. So um, do you accommodate that without uh, legislation, without revision of the legislation? I, I would support absolutely going back to uh, uh, Congress, uh, but they don't regularly uh, um, uh, enact uh, revisions, amendments uh, to the law. 34 uh, takes us to 96, 96 us takes us now uh, many years hence, and uh, certainly the circumstances have changed. Uh, insofar as West Virginia is concerned, I think uh, you really do have to dot your I's and cross your T's, but going back to uh, complimenting the, the drafters, I think they tried to future-proof. They crafted very sophisticated definitions of telecommunications, telecommunications information service. And they also anticipated that there could be a time where you have to expand the set of contributors, contributors who provide telecommunications as part of maybe a content distribution network, maybe a, an enhanced service, maybe ISPs, internet service providers, broadband uh, internet access providers. Uh, you could dispute that and say, well, you know, this is telecommunications that, not, that is not a mass market uh, holding out to the public. Uh, and there are going to be all sorts of opportunities for, for lawyers to litigate that. But uh, going back to the Chevron doctrine, there is ambiguity. And the question is whether the commission has been reasonable. I think there are instances where they have and instances where they have not. Ben. Any last predictions or comments? Obviously, I think West Virginia applies. I have no idea how the courts will, in the fifth and sixth circuit, will play out. And and I guess I would just say, you know, it, it hasn't really been teed up in the fifth circuit case because it only got introduced in the brief that Harold put in. So petitioners have not really raised it. Um, that being said, I do think it's different. I mean, you had a case in which EPA was alleged to have adopted a far-reaching rule based upon um, a, a pretty ambiguous, fairly used statutory provision. Whereas here, as, as Professor Frieden said, you've got something with 20 years of sort of jurisprudence and, and regulatory regime around it. 
Um, it's been interpreted and applied multiple times over. So I, I do think it presents a different, different case here. Well, thank you to all the participants um, and pa the panelists today. This has been a fascinating discussion and thanks to all for tuning in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ariel. And I'll reiterate your thanks. Thanks, to the Federalist Society. Well. Oh, of course. Happy to have you all. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to today's virtual event. You can check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on any of the major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date. With that, we're adjourned.